morning. Can we hear me? Hear me okay? All right. Well, happy Fifth of July. I uh, I guess I shouldn't make any assumptions. Most of you know me. My name is Jack, uh, and I'm filling in this morning for our senior pastor, Daryl, and uh, I've agreed to torture you in his stead. Um, and it is a holiday weekend. We can tell that by uh, a few empty seats. But And I didn't build a message around the holiday weekend, but I, I am a little bit of a history buff, and I did serve in the military, so I have a unique appreciation for um, our country and some of the things that it represents. So I did a little research on a few tidbits I'm going to throw at you. And while I'm doing that, if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the New Testament, or Old Testament, rather. I found it interesting looking at the signers of the Declaration of Independence. There were 56 of them. Now keep in mind while I'm telling you this that uh, there's, a, there's a pattern in our modern culture to do away with God. We all know the dollar says, and God we trust. But there's a little more than that uh, in the infancy of our country. 27 of those 56 original signers actually had degrees from seminaries. John Witherspoon, Reverend John Witherspoon, also a signer, oversaw the printing of the Bible of Congress in 1782. Charles Thompson, later the Secretary of Congress, was responsible for the first translation of the Bible in America. And this was later published as the Thompson Bible. Benjamin Rush founded the first Bible Society in America. Francis Hawkins, responsible for the first hymnal published in America. And John Adams, our second president, uh, it was recorded by Benjamin Rush, both who were signers also on the Declaration of Independence. Um, while they were sitting next to each other in a number of hearings or committee meetings while they were walking through, revising the Declaration, while these 56 guys got together and decided to oppose the strongest power on earth at that time, Benjamin Rush uh, records in his diary that he leaned over and asked Adams during one of these meetings, he said, Do you think we can really, John, win this conflict? And Adams replied, yes, if we repent of our sins and we rely on God. That's recorded history. Rush later wrote in his diary that he recorded this for history, for posterity, because he wanted to teach others that it was possible to be godly and in politics that the two were not, in fact, incompatible, which I've thought about many times. John Adams, who, as I mentioned, was our second president, he wrote a letter in 1813. He was um, an avid writer, an avid reader, and wrote many letters which which were uh, recorded um, over history um, to his wife, Abigail. And uh, people who study John Adams learn quickly about their unique and loving and adoring relationship and that she really was the second president of the United States. But he wrote in that one of his letters, the principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the principles of Christianity. 
He said, I will now avow that I did believe and I now believe that those principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the general attributes and characteristics of God. So don't tell me our country's not built on the principles of Christianity. In the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to look at chapter 6, the first nine verses. And I'm going to try my hardest not to go too long. Uh, The book of Deuteronomy, just to set it up a little bit, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, it's the fifth book of the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament are known as the Pentateuch in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. The book of Deuteronomy marks the final words of Moses to the nation of Israel just before his death and just before they're crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Largely, generally speaking, the book of Deuteronomy talks about Moses' instructs on the fruits and blessings of obedience and the curse of disobedience. The Israelites, to put it in context, have been wandering for almost 40 years in the wilderness since exiting the bondage in Egypt. Deuteronomy 1.1 tells us they're encamped just east of the Jordan and they're postured to cross into the promised land. Moses would then be addressing the second generation of Israelites. Those who are 40 to 60 years of age were probably born in Egypt and were children or teens throughout the Exodus. All those under 40, they were born in the wilderness. And this generation is on the verge of conquering the land of Canaan, the promised land, by God to his covenant people. Now, chapter 6, which we're about to read from, is taking place just after God, re- or rather Moses, God through Moses, reasserts to the Israelites the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And Moses is telling his people over and over that as a basic element of your relationship with Almighty God, you must have a total commitment to your God. I'm going to start reading verse 1, if you'll read with me. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Verse 2, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words... Which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, 
and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When people entered the promised land, God wanted them to be in the right moral condition. In verse 1, Moses says, This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments. The commandments are, in fact, the moral law. The statutes and the judgment, judgments were ceremonial rules and rules by which disputes were settled. Moses is giving practical instruction, not just to the Israelites as they cross the River Jordan, but for life. If we're to be in a right moral condition to prosper and enjoy life as God intended, we must be an obedient people. When you look at verse 1, Moses was only teaching what God commanded him to teach. He wasn't just coming up with some good advice. He says, God commanded me to teach you. And then the next verse or the next line in verse 1, so that you might do them, so that you might do these things. Why? Verse 2, so that you and your children and your children's children might fear the Lord to keep His commandments all the days of your life. He says in verse 3, Listen, O Israel, and be careful to do it so that you live a long life and that it may be well with you and your children, which ultimately glorifies God. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Israelites were, ready, were to readily know that there is only one true God. We are to know that there is only one true God, Adonai. The Lord of Lords. In Matthew 28, 20, you don't need to look it up, but it's the last verse uh, Christ gives to his disciples in that book. And he's instructing his disciples to go forth and teach and baptize all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. How does this apply to us? Well, Christ later says, he says, I and the Father are one. There's a practical application of obedience for all of us. In verse 5 and 6, which is said to be the greatest commandment by Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We are to love God supremely. We are to love His Word. His word shall be, verse 6, on your heart. That's where it has to start. And then verse 7, he says, Teach these things diligently to your children. And I don't think that's an accident in order. First, impress it on your heart, and then teach these things diligently. And the focus, much of what I'm... I'm breaking down here as we look through uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is focused on parenting in many ways but don't let that be an excuse to stretch your legs and, and look the other way maybe you're not with uh, children or uh, you, your kids are already gone 
or your grandparents, or maybe your grandparents and you don't know your grandparents, or maybe uh, uh, you have nieces and nephews. Um, But I'm telling you that this is equally applicable to all of us. This is equally of value to all of us, especially as a community of Christians. We all take an equal stake in the body of Christ, in this church, in nurturing our children in the Christian life. You shall teach them the commandments diligently to your children. And then it goes on to tell you when, how often, you might ask. When walking, when talking, when sitting, when laying down, when getting up, all the time. Use life (laughs) as a constant example. The context of life from morning to night presents endless opportunities to impart God's wisdom to not just our kids, but to anybody we hold dear. And we should note at this point that Moses speaking to the Israelites, this is not a suggestion. This is a mandate. Not to be left exclusively to the church, particularly. Moses was instructing the Israelites in an intentional love and obedience before crossing into Canaan. And should they do these things, they were sure to prosper in righteousness. The church today, we're given the gift of grace through Christ on the cross. And in obedience, we'll prosper, bearing the fruits of righteousness, including eternity with God. Where nothing is wanting and there's a fullness of joy, not a tear. That's incredible. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18 through 23, tells us to impress these words on your heart and on your soul. Hold fast to God. If you want to know how to do this, hold fast to God and impress these things on your heart. The Word of God is to be subject, a subject of household conversation. It is to be loved. It is to be lived. With every opportunity, teach it to your children. In fact, God's eternal truth is most effectively learned in the sanctity of our homes. It's a safe environment. Hopefully it's a loving environment. And this is where the fundamentals of walking the walk and talking the talk take place, right? Make it a part of everyday experiences. Associate God's words, God's word with all things that are familiar to you and your kids or your nephews or your grandchildren or those you walk with and spend time with. We don't really walk too much anymore. We drive everywhere, right? Which, by the way, is a great opportunity. Ask my son to turn off the phone and turn down the radio and get into some heart matters. And he can't get out, so... You know, Christian just turned 11 the other day. If you're a parent, man, you, you it just, and I, we're, we're, we're still, we still feel, I still feel somewhat young. Uh, 
But I'll tell you, parents tell me all the time, just enjoy it, enjoy it, enjoy it. I can't slow it down. I've tried. But he's, he's on his way, isn't he? He's on his way to adolescence. He's on his way to being a teenager and into adulthood. Do I have an obligation there? You better believe it. Not only to keep this stuff impressed on my heart, <laughs> but then turn around and teach it to him and his sisters. And it's not complicated. I'm not a scholar by any means. But God's Word, the truth speaks on its own. Christian, guard your heart. You think he knows what that means? You bet. Christian, iron sharpens iron. You think he knows what that means? His best buddy Braden loves the Lord just like he does. They hang out together. They talk about these things. Think of it this way, especially if you're feeling lazy or complacent. Long day at work, tired. It's not every night I can sit down on my son's bed or down the stairs in the couch uh, and open God's Word and read with him. But we try. Sometimes weeks will go by and we don't. But it's, it's always back there and we're always trying to apply it in some way, either through life lessons or purposeful study. But remember, you're battling for your kid's soul. Verse 8 and 9, when I first read it, I said, boy, that's weird. He says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do we take that literally? Did the Israelites, the nation of Israel, take that literally? Some of them did. In fact, I found in preparing that there's a bit of a debate out there whether or not Moses intended that literally. But the intended truth for you and I and for the Israelites is that you impress it on your heart. You make it part of every thought, every word, every deed. God's Word is present in you. Okay? I used to have a friend in law school. His name was PJ. And PJ came from an Orthodox Jewish family. And all we did was study in law school. But... PJ and I would hang out every now and again, and he'd say, come on over to my apartment, let's get out of the law library. And so we'd go to his house, well, or his apartment, rather, and I would remember walking through his uh, doorway, and up on the door frame there was a small white box that had been tacked up there, and inside of it was a scroll of Jewish scripture, probably some of these very scriptures. And these are called phylacteries, one term for them. And uh, the Jews who did take this literally would, in fact bind on their hands Holy Scripture and bind on their head either in a pouch or a small box with Holy Scripture. In fact, you could even see them doing the same thing this very day if you were to travel to Israelite or other, uh, to Israel rather and see Orthodox Jews worshiping. Is there a practical application? You better believe it. I mean, what are our hands doing? Right? There's a reason this is in there. Just like everything else. Intentional. God's Word is incredible. Our hands are constant action, right? God's Word should control our every action. I'm not going to tie a pouch around my head, but the frontal denotes what? The forehead. Where's my finger? It's right between my eyes. God's Word should control your, 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 your very desires, your vision, what you look at, what you covet, what you lust after. 
the word over your doorpost. It's not tacked on our doorframe. But when people walk into our home, I hope they know they're walking into a godly home. Take care of your family in accordance with the word. Take care of your children in accordance with the word. Take care of yourself in accordance with God's word. Impress it on your heart. Hold fast. I want us to feel the constraint of this responsibility. I alluded to this earlier, but the larger context of Deuteronomy is in fact obedience. Obedience to God's command as to our children. We're to give careful instruction to our children, right? Obedience to God's commands, period. So that our days, and I'm reading from verse 21 in chapter 18, our days and the days of our children will be multiplied and it will be well with you. How do we obey God's word? What's the first step? Well, verse 5 tells us, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and strength. And listen, I'm, I'm talking about what are arguably not uh, popular things, right? In modern day culture, even modern day Christianity, obedience, fear, sin. Look, the fear of God impressed on our hearts is the single most powerful principle of obedience. It's highly desirable that we not only, that we not only, but also our children and our children's children may fear the Lord. Now that, when I first read that and heard that, that that rubbed me a little bit. I'm human. I'm depraved like the rest of you. I didn't understand it. Why do I have to fear God? Doesn't God love us? Isn't He a loving God? Righteousness will advance, securing the prosperity of all generations and of all people for those who fear the Lord indeed. Why isn't this taught in many churches today? And I've sat in a few sermons. And like I mentioned, I'm not that old, but I've sat in a few sermons in a couple of different churches. In fact, do we have any Episcopalian upbringings here? By chance? No one? No, not in the good Southern Baptist Church. How about Assemblies of God? Yeah, there we go. Well, I know you for a fact. My mom's down here. Moral support. Well, I'm a hybrid, so I don't know where that leaves me. Except just diving into the truth on my own regard and letting God speak directly to my heart. Because I grew up in both of those environments. But churches seem to bend over backwards to avoid things like fear and obedience, things that were clearly instructed in God's Word, which cause us to what? To prosper, to be blessed, to move toward righteousness. But that's not what it's about. It's about the glory of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it's about God's glory, not ours. Fear is simply keeping things in context. The Israelites had reason to fear God. I mean, certainly, in His presence, they thought they would die. In fact, they would have. God is a loving God, but He's also a just God. That we will all stand before one day. That is absolute truth. Absolute truth from the beginning of creation through eternity. Not absolute truth while I'm sitting here during my lifetime, but absolute truth from the beginning of creation through eternity 
we will all stand before a holy, just, loving, almighty God and have to account. And the moral condition of our hearts is what we're going to be judged by. And the moral commandments is that law by which we'll be judged. Have you ever told a lie? Once in your life, have you ever stolen anything, regardless of how small or of what value? Have you ever used God's name in vain? Ever? Dishonored your parents, dishonored your father, your mother? If you're honest, the answer is likely yes. We're told in the New Testament in Romans, no one is good, not one. There was one man who walked the earth who was perfect. And he was crucified on a cross. He was horribly beaten. He was brutally murdered. And he prayed for his murderers while they did that. And he did that for you and I. So that we could stand before God on that day, that absolute truth that will happen, and our case is dismissed if we do two things, right? We have to walk away first intentionally from our old life. The Bible calls it repentance. And then we just trust in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross and that He rose again. You trust in Christ. You don't just believe half-heartedly that it happened. You place your life's trust in Him. Moses gave the Israelites a choice. He said, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. In chapter 11, he says, the blessing is if you listen to God's commandments. The curse, you can guess it, is if you don't. The thing that will absolutely be necessary for the Israelites and for us is our faith and our obedience. How they devoted themselves to God's law, how they teach their children, how they devoted themselves to those things will be in Canaan, in the promised land, their safeguard. And how we devote ourselves to those things, how we hold fast to God and impress these things on our heart will be our safeguard. I ask you, how do we break the circle when we think about our children, (laughs) of allowing the surrounding sex-saturated non-Christian culture to capture, to inundate, to grab hold of our kids' hearts and minds. It starts with our own faith and our own obedience and our own actions and our own desires. Everything we do, everything we think should be impacted by the Word of God. Period. Remember our study of Philippians? Chapter 4, verse 8, I think. Salutation from Paul. What did he tell us to think about? To ponder on, to contemplate on, to dwell on. Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise... That's what we should be thinking about. 
That's where our minds and our hearts should be. And then what does he say? Verse 9, Paul says, You've seen these things in me. I've set the example. Now you go do these things. You practice these things and what? God will be with you. It's the exact same with our kids. Be able to tell them, whether it's your grandchildren or your nephews, your children, your buddies, whatever. Be able to say, you've seen these things in me. I'm showing them to you. Practice these things and God will be with you. Don't just have it in your heart when it comes to our kids and those you love. Make sure you impart the same to them. Dads, single moms, grandparents, nieces, rather uncles, aunts, you are the pastors of your congregations. And the congregation is your family. Remember Joshua? Joshua eventually, Moses died. Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan into Canaan. And at one point in uh, uh, chapter 24, he says, he says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, applicable today, absolutely. Serving the Lord seems very undesirable to many. He says, if that's the case, then make a choice, because there's no gray area here, is there? Make a choice this day whom you will serve. And then he makes his choice clear, doesn't he? He says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And, and, and make no mistake, the long-term consequences, the inevitable uh, detriment to your children can be generational. We're told in more than one place the sins of our fathers will be visited upon the third and fourth generation. And maybe you came from a home where your parents are doing the right thing by human standards, right? Or maybe not. But they certainly weren't imparting God's wisdom to you as a child. You weren't being raised up to understand what it meant to have a right moral condition. You weren't being raised up to understand what it meant to guard your heart, son. That world, it's crazy. And it doesn't love the Lord. But God's Word tells us what? Hold fast. And I'm telling you, break your family tree. Starting today, if necessary. Break your family tree. And that way, your children and your children's children and their children are going to understand God's Word and God's commandments and what it means to, to, uh, to seek after Almighty God and in turn to be blessed and to prosper, ultimately bringing glory to God. This kind of application or, 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 or instruction, rather, is all throughout the Bible. Parenting is not a small topic in the Bible. Proverbs 22 tells us, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes his father glad. I can attest to that. There's nothing more important nor personally more fulfilling. In the third letter of John, verse 4, it says, I have no greater joy than this than to hear my children walking in the truth. In verse 7, we read that Moses commanded you shall teach them, your children, diligently, or rather teach them the commandments diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. I looked up the word diligently. Webster's defines it as characterized by steady, earnest, and energetic effort. Painstaking. The origin of the word came from the Anglo-French, which is derived from the Latin diligent, diligens, from the present participle of diligere. I don't even remember what a present participle is. President, I'm sure you could help me. But that present participle is to esteem and to love, painstakingly love your children by imparting this stuff to them all the time. Every opportunity you get, life presents it constantly. Before I conclude, I just I, I wanna I wanna give you the how. Okay, I've heard heard some great sermons, and this this doesn't apply to our brilliant brilliant pastor, but he's probably listening to this at some point. But I've walked out of of church with God's truth in my heart, and and and, and a lesson, you know dancing in my cranium, trying to work through things and apply it to my own life. And, and, uh, and I often have said to myself, well, how do I, how do I apply that? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you with that just a little bit. Starting with Deuteronomy 13.4, it says, You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments. Listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. Alright, so with that starting point, I'm telling you, read your Scripture. Okay? Frequently, make time for this. As much as possible, make it a priority. With purposeful study, these words will come alive. I used to read God's Word, but now I read God's Word. And those words, there's a reason it's called the Living Word. Stored in you. Make the Bible familiar to you so that it's ready to use in all occasions, so that you readily can restrain from sin, so that you can possess ready direction, and so that you don't forget in times of prosperity and plenty. Meditate. Read and then meditate. God's Word must be laid on our hearts. We're told to impress His Word on our hearts that our thoughts might be involved by it each day. Only then can we turn around and impart the same to our children, right? Think about where your mind is. Think about where the world points your mind. Hollywood, celebrities, sports, video games, our job. There's a lot of stuff out there competing. But these things aren't worthy of meditation like the things that Paul talks on, are they? Be purposeful about it. Make it a priority. God tells us that after we're saved, after we repent, and after we trust in Jesus, and we take that step, 
And grace, man, is honest. I've fallen on my face more times than I can count. But the New Testament tells us where transgressions increase, what? Grace abounds. Rely on that. You can. Your slate's wiped clean. Your case is dismissed. Eternity in heaven is for you. Impart these truths after you laid them on your heart to your children. Repeat them. Or to anyone under your care. Often. Be intentional. So read, meditate on what you read, and teach. And the last one is talk, which is tied closely into teaching, of course, but talk of these things all the time for the benefit of your kids, for your coworkers, your employees, your friends, your companions. Talk of these things. Take every chance, not necessarily to dispute, but to exhort, to encourage, to share, to learn about the truths of God. spoke to you about John Adams earlier and I'm, I'm concluding um, he, was, he was the second president of the United States he was a great statesman brilliant man history records that he was a lawyer uh, an intellectual he loved the Lord and he was a great statesman he also had six kids five kids one died and much like you and I whether we are an actual parent or we have children in our church or we have nieces and nephews or grandchildren, he had a responsibility to impart God's wisdom into his children, right? But because of his sacrifice for his country, he spent a lot of time overseas. In fact, he had to go restore relations with England after, after they won the war. And there's a scene, David McCullough writes a book and he's noted for his... Uh, being just scrupulous about his details and, and having factual details in his writing of history. And HBO did a, multi, a miniseries uh, based on his book called John Adams. And there's a scene in that uh, miniseries. Jen and I watched it. It was really, really good. But this particular scene, he comes back to accolades, right? People are recognizing him for the sacrifice. But then he has to come to his children. Well, his third son, Michael, I think, I'm not real sure, I don't remember his name, but his third son had been living less than a reputable life, less than certainly a life John Adams would have approved of. And so there's this confrontation, there's this strife, and, and the father saying, how can you embarrass your family, and how can you do these things? And the son saying, who are you to talk to me? You've been gone. You haven't been there for me. John Adams is serving his country. His kids are growing from this big to adulthood. He missed it. John says in that scene, he says, I wrote you letters. Didn't you get my letters? I instructed you in my letters. Well, you can imagine the look on his son's face. Give me a break, Dad. Well, that story adds, uh, ends very sadly. That particular son dies alone, broke, in a drunken stupor. He kills himself, essentially, with children, with a wife. There is sure detriment to our kids if we don't impart with every opportunity the wisdom of God to them.
And just lastly, never be ashamed of what you know in your heart to be truth. Battle for those you love. Battle for your kids. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just... uh, Man, I thank You for the blessing of Your Word in our life and all that it teaches us. There is nothing missing. There is no probably in Your Word, Lord. It is a sure thing. I pray that we can impress Your Word on our hearts. I pray that we leave here holding fast not just this morning not just this evening tomorrow the day after and the day after and that we can in doing so God give this to our kids every opportunity that presents itself raise them up Your word tells us don't provoke our kids. (laughs) Don't make them angry. Teach them. Talk to them. Encourage them in your word. That they might grow up to know you and to give the same thing to those that they love and those that they're surrounded by. What a blessing. What an honor that would be. And all of it, God, to your glory, not to ours to your glory. I thank you for every heart in this room this morning, Lord. I pray your truth just dances on each heart as we leave here this morning. Thank you for your grace, your incredible mercy, your incredible love. Thank you for your absolute truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.